0: Hello, this is Brexit Means, the Guardian podcast that's been discussing the ongoing car crash that is Brexit for your greater entertainment, elucidation and general disapprobation since approximately 1784, or at least that's what it's starting to feel like. This time, though, we're off. The first round of negotiations on the future relationship between the UK and the EU is over. About 100 British officials made the trip to Brussels, led by the UK's chief negotiator, David Frost, who's up against his opposite number, Michel Barnier, as the two sides try to reach agreement on everything from trade in goods to fishing rights. Now, compared with the relatively circumscribed divorce negotiations that led to last year's withdrawal agreement, the scope for these talks is vast. Eleven different groups of officials sat down in a conference centre because the European Commission headquarters simply weren't big enough. The outcome is far from certain, and Barnier said afterwards that there were serious divergences between the two sides. Now this is of course only to be expected, because they are deeply divided in their goals. To simplify, the UK seems clear that what it basically wants is a basic free trade agreement, giving it the maximum degree of access to Europe's single market that it can get, given its ultimate objective, which is to be completely free of all EU rules and regulations. The EU, on the other hand, wants whatever market access can be agreed on in that free trade agreement to be dependent on far-reaching UK commitments on future policy. And it's determined that there must be legally binding ways to resolve any future disputes and penalties for any breaches. So, on the one side, we have an overriding objective of full, sovereign, unrestricted policy-making independence and, on the other, an insistence on cast-iron guarantees so that British companies will not one day be able to compete unfairly with EU firms. And this fundamental divide isn't the only rift on the substance, as we will see. But if you add in the rhetoric, which has been busily ramping up, with Boris Johnson threatening to walk away from the talks if no progress has been made by June, and the time pressure, because no one seriously believes that a deal of any real depth can be done in a year, you do end up with a fairly explosive recipe. So, what can we expect? With me to discuss that burning question are, in London, David Hennig, a veteran trade negotiator and UK director of the European Centre for International Political Economy, and on the line from Brussels, The Guardian's Jennifer Rankin, who has frankly forgotten more about the inner workings of the EU than most of us have ever known. A Welcome to both of you, David. Let's start with the shape of the agreement uh, that each side is aiming for before we get on to the Sort of the content. So the EU wants one big overarching deal, right? Covering everything trade, fish, foreign policy, services, security cooperation, research and development, the works. Uh, the UK, on the other hand, wants a basic free trade deal like the one that the EU did with Canada, plus separate agreements on the side, presumably, I suppose, so that there can't be any attempt by the EU to try and sort of make a deal on one element, say trade, contingent on a deal on another, say fishing. So, Could you just sort of explain to us how important
1: this difference is and how
0: might it be
1: resolved, do you think? Thank you, John. And I'll uh, get over being called a veteran. I still feel too young to be uh, <laughs> to be called a veteran. I do apologise. <laughs> um, so, I, just to confuse matters more for all the listeners, I think this is the, an, an agreement where neither side want what they claim that they want. And this is a, a good example as the one you've just provided about the shape of the agreement. So, the UK say we want just a standalone free trade agreement, but actually we'd quite like a few other things in there as well, just the things that we want to be in there. Like the uh, the data equivalents, or perhaps financial services, the EU claims they want one overarching agreement. That's mainly because they've never they've never had one with Switzerland, and that's been an extremely painful relationship of hundreds of different agreements. But on the other hand, they've not got any other relationship really where there is just one agreement. There's typically, there is one major agreement, but then lots of other minor agreements that don't always dock in perfectly either. So. The, the the net result of that is that you can see a space where this gets to a conclusion which is that there is at least a, an, an overarching UK-EU deal and the free trade agreement and some other things are slotted into it but not everything and some bits are are separate. It strikes me that you can you can see where that one goes to. But like many things in this relationship, it's not always to, easy to see how you're going to get to that point from now, given that it's not clear there's a lot of goodwill in the room at the moment.
0: Yeah. Oh, yes. We'll come on to that question of goodwill a bit later. Jennifer, does that sort of uh, chime with what you're getting in Brussels? I mean, how determined are the EU to hold out for this kind of, uh, you know, big overall framework deal? And I mean, is it a deal breaker if they don't get it?
2: Well, they're certainly determined not to repeat the Swiss experience, whereas David said they have so many uh, little mini-deals, 120, I think, altogether, and they're in a state of more or less permanent negotiation but on the other hand, is it a deal breaker? I think at the moment it's it's too soon t- to tell, um, and and for the UK as well, how it's how this is really going to play out, and and I think in the end the the, the, the substance questions will be more different than the form questions. But for, but certainly for now, this is it's a it's a clear area where where they disagree, and and I think for the EU they just see this as a very practical question because there's so little time, and they think there's very little. Time to do lots of separate agreements that would all have separate ratification procedures. So, if you do want to do lots of lots of smaller agreements uh, and then create separate bespoke governance systems for them all, then then how much are you going to do in the next ten months? Answer: Probably not very much. At the moment, we're both sides are setting out their positions. the The differences are wide, but whether this becomes a big deal breaker for the, the talks, I'm not convinced. But we'll have to see how how they how both sides choose to play this.
0: So much then for the sort of the form of the negotiations. Um, let's move on to the content and some of the sort of the the bigger flashpoints that that we might expect. One of the biggest, I suppose, is this whole question of a, a level playing field. Now. Both sides say they want a free trade agreement with zero tariffs and zero quotas, so no restrictions on quantity. But the EU says that is only on offer if the UK promises not to undercut EU companies. Now, that means abiding by the EU's rules on state aid into the future and matching the spirit, if not the letter, of EU laws on social and employment law, environmental standards, tax, that kind of thing. The UK basically says it's not prepared to sign up to this, and it claims the EU hasn't demanded this of other free trade agreement partners. So it, it's being very unfair. David, does the UK have a point on this? Is I mean, is the UK making unfair demands on this whole issue of, of, a, of a level playing field?
1: The EU almost always makes unreasonable demands of those that it offers preferential access. Let's be clear here. What the EU is offering to the UK is preferential access compared to the World Trade Organization. That's pretty common. And if you want that, and they're the large market, you have to pay a price. Now, that price always differs. But in the case of the UK, the price appears to be stringent level playing field conditions. It's not really for us to argue with them. It's no longer down to us as as members as to whether they're fair or unfair. The real question is, can we sign up to them? And what happens if we don't sign up to them all? How much room is there for negotiation? It seems to me that in some areas there probably is room for negotiation. We won't have to sign up to absolutely everything. We won't have to have the European Court of Justice arbitrating on absolutely everything. We have to sign up to some of these level playing field provisions because there are always some in every trade agreement. And the EU has a bit of a problem on this one itself because... Yes, it wants to go further with the UK than it's done before. This has been the subject of quite a lot of discussion around Brussels trade policy circles for quite a few mm. years. So it's not entirely new um, when the UK says, well, it's unfair. You haven't done this before. they have been pretty fierce debates in some Brussels meeting rooms that the EU should have done this before of have very strict level playing field conditions the trouble is one of the reasons the EU didn't do that before is it's not entirely clear on some of these subjects like labour and environment how easy it is to enforce the idea that standards must never go down what do you mean by that it sounds mm. to me like it could become a little bit of a lawyer's paradise with both sides continually <laughs> complaining that the other one has done something somewhere that has undermined labor standards and demanding to increase some tariffs as a result. And that's the opposite of the kind of certainty you want in a trade deal.
0: Yes, I mean, that's a very good point, sort of confusion uh, and, and potential for sort of, uh, you know, legal actions and so on into the future. Jennifer, I mean, is that one of the reasons why the EU is so keen to, to sort of really lock this down?
2: Yes, I, I think so. They they are concerned about having getting into this sort of very antagonistic situation where you're constantly wrangling over over whether one uh, one side is going below the standards, and they want a sort of clear and unambiguous commitment from the UK that they're not going to uh, be the so called Singapore on Thames when it comes to workers' rights or environmental standards. Albeit Michel Barnier said recently that he doesn't actually think the UK wants to go in that direction, but um, uh, and he, his argument is that, well, if the UK is so ready to to maintain high standards, then why not simply sign on the dotted line in in the agreement? Mm. And I I think for the EU, this, this is a really crucial issue because it's something that unites the 27. And it's it's not just France. I mean, we saw in the last few weeks, France were really taking a very maximalist position when it comes to the level playing field, really wanting to, to keep the UK signed up to the most sort of demanding kind of level playing field where you have dynamic alignment, where you're continually upgrading UK rules when the EU upgrades theirs. I think there's a bit of uh, room for negotiation there on what exactly the level playing field means. And that's still got to be worked out in in the negotiating room but i think on the overall principle of a level playing field it's something that the eu really won't compromise on uh, very far because they see this also as about guaranteeing the future of their internal market and about mm. keeping together a, as a, a unit
0: yeah and i mean that integrity of the uh, of the eu single market really has been the sort of top priority from their top priority from day one hasn't it
2: and also we're, yes exactly and, we're, and the eu is just in a position where it's about to make a lot of big upgrades to to environmental legislation in particular. We've got the European Green Deal uh, announced by Ursula von der Leyen uh, a few weeks ago. And in that, you're going to see upgrades of air pollution standards. You're going to see a reform of the European emissions trading system, which will affect how uh, um, companies can uh, pollute and and so on. So they're going to look for, for similar commitments from the UK. Uh, albeit the uk is already is saying that it wants to go in the same direction as well but i think from an eu point of view it's not good enough just to promise that we're going to do our best to be green they really want to see that tied down in in a legal way
0: and something signed on the dotted line exactly okay well that's so that's one potential bust up then um another one uh very definitely is in prospect over fish Um, Now, here, the EU is basically after the status quo, uh, I think, allowing sort of EU fishermen access to UK waters as at present. And it's said, maybe significantly, that it is not going to agree to any kind of sort of wider trade deal unless this thing is settled, unless the question of, of fisheries is settled. Britain, on the other hand, wants annual fish negotiations, and it's rejecting any Kind of linkage with that sort of broader trade deal, David. Fish. I mean, it's a strange thing, isn't it, to, for, for 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 the two sides to get hung up on? I mean, is it is it more than just symbolic? I mean, would the UK really walk away from the talks over you know a, a, an industry that that represents actually such a sort of a small proportion of
1: of, of UK GDP? Trade deals aren't just about trade, ever. Most trade deals focus overwhelmingly on agriculture which is only just a larger percentage of GDP than fishing is so it's not entirely surprising to find that fish is a major issue it's also a rare area in which the UK has some serious leverage that our fishing waters are actually quite significant it's complicated internally in the UK because many of much of those fishing waters are actually Uh, around scotland it's even more complicated by the fact that the fish that we catch is not necessarily the fish we want to eat then you've got seafood which needs to get to european markets very quickly otherwise it has a short shelf life and it's and is worth less all of that put together leads one to think this is a hugely complex issue i think the eu probably doesn't expect to get what it has right now but there has to make that as a start as a starting point and it is a, an example of an issue which will which will show whether the two sides can cooperate or not. So, in that sense, I think the EU is probably right to say let's let's treat this as a first test. If we can get over the fishing problem, then we have the chance of having a sturdy relationship going forward. If we can't resolve fish, what chance of resolving many of the other complex issues? Probably not so much. Plus which, just the symbolism, fish, agriculture, these are symbolic issues in pretty much every country, certainly for fish, obviously every uh, coastal country. We're used Mm. in trade world to these being the big issues. That's interesting.
0: Jennifer, Fisher's is a kind of litmus test then. Do you think David's right that the, that the EU may not expect to get exactly what it has at the moment, but, but sees this as a, as a kind of a, you know, a, a test for, for, for what might be negotiated further down the line?
2: I think it is a litmus test, partly because both sides have agreed that they will try to get a fisheries deal by the first of July, so so you know well in advance of all the other parts of the talks, and that will be a sign as to how the talks more generally are going. But also from from an EU point of view, it gets complicated because the uh, the Commission actually came out with a, a slightly sort of less demanding initial position than than EU member states, and it was EU member states, especially those eight coastal states, so fishing in British waters such as France, such as Belgium and the Netherlands. It was those countries that said, actually, no, we, we want to ensure that we have absolutely the status quo and we uphold the current system. So I think initially the Commission were looking for something with that gave them a bit more room for manoeuvre, but now it seems that they've, they've actually lost that by, by the actions of the member states. And so at the moment, there's complete deadlock. We have the, the EU on the one hand saying... Uh, we want the status quo, which is based on historic catches, which countries would claim go back for many hundreds of years. And on the other hand, you have the UK, which is attached to a system of, of zonal attachment, which basically means, you know, if the fish are in our waters, then we have the right to, to catch them. It's it's more complicated than that, of course, but but that's the, the, the basic principle. And, and they do want uh, Brexit to mean a real change. And, and they are saying that well, you know, if, if you're asking us to basically maintain the status quo, then that's a sign that, uh, you know, you're not respecting our, our status as an independent coastal state. So this is going to be like a really, um, really tough negotiation and it's really not obvious how it's going to go and and... And how the the two sides will find a compromise in this area because they're they're miles apart on, on so many areas. I mean, just to give one example, Michel Barnier said this week after the end of the talks that there's no way we can have an annual negotiation every single year when we're talking about 100 stocks. That's just, you know, not practical. Whereas the UK say, well, why not? You know, we do it every, we did it every year um, at the uh, Fisheries Council in December when we were a member state, this is how these things work. You know, with a bit of hard work, it's it's perfectly possible. They're really far apart. And what's not completely clear, I think, at the moment is how far the EU are going to try and use other areas as a lever to get what they want on Mm. fisheries. And remember Emmanuel Macron said once that fisheries is a lever. They know that that it's not sort of ruled out that they may use, say, something completely unrelated like uh, a decision on whether to grant UK financial firms' equivalents that gives them right to, to, to trade in, in the EU, whether a decision like that could be linked to fisheries. Barnier said yesterday he doesn't want that kind of bargaining, but, but who knows where we are in a few months' time and, and how that's going to play and also what pressure he might be under from member states to take a really tough line.
0: OK, so we'll leave it there for the moment. After the break, we'll come back to talk about equally tricky issues – For example, the question of governance and the issue of whether the UK should have access to EU financial markets. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big
0: wireless does. They charge you a lot. Buro's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Buro order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burocom ACAST. That's 15% off at burocom ACAST. Welcome back to Brexit Means. I'm John Henley. Now, as part of the, the big this big overarching agreement that the EU wants, um, it also wants an independent arbitration panel that will issue kind of binding rulings on any disputes. And if there are any disputes involving EU law, it wants the European Court of Justice to decide on them. Now, the UK obviously wants nothing at all to do with the ECJ. It wants what it calls appropriate governance arrangements for each of the separate deals that it's after, um, without kind of specific spelling out what those might be. David, is this another potential? Deal breaker. I mean, the UK does seem absolutely set on completely removing itself from the orbit of the European Court of Justice and indeed from, you know, from 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 all European institutions. Is this a kind of ideological red line that that might really lead to things breaking down?
1: This is a deal breaker if the UK's absolute red line is... No ECJ involvement whatsoever. So there's two ways you could define the UK's red line. It's either no ECJ having direct effect on UK law, and that leaves open the possibility that the ECJ can interpret EU law, the UK will still be able to take part in EU programmes. I mean, things like Erasmus are partly underpinned by ECJ in those particular areas. If there is an absolute red line on no ECJ, that rules the UK out of many European institutions and probably, mm. I suspect, is close to a deal breaker here as well. I suspect, ultimately, you can't, it, it's not a sustainable red line for the uk to say no forever to having the ECJ somewhere interpreting eu law what's you know because that's not really got to do with direct effect on us but it may take us a while to get to that point so this looks like ideology being played out in london Okay,
0: so so potentially a a, a real flashpoint unless we see some some sort of give from on, on the UK side. Jennifer, I mean, likewise, I mean, presumably this this really is a deal breaker for the EU. The EU can't envisage an arrangement that doesn't have the ECJ as as the sort of ultimate arbiter, I imagine.
2: I, I, yes, I, it is a deal breaker in in that circumstance because the EU will always maintain that the ECJ ha, is preeminent to interpret European law. I mean, just as the UK would uh, would uh, would say that the the Supreme Court would be preeminent in, in interpreting English law, and and you know similar for the. For Applying also for the, the devolved um, legal systems, so I think you know for the for the EU to do otherwise would call into question its whole legal order. So, so that's why Barnier said yesterday it's it's a must for us, and I do think that. The EU will dig in on this point and and to take them seriously. But on the on the other hand, I mean, what does it mean for the UK if the ECJ is the final arbiter of EU law? What would the consequences be? It's not sort of clear exactly what the what the arguments are that the British government is is making on this point and why they are so afraid or concerned about having the ECJ as a final arbiter, or whether it is just this sort of knee jerk neuralgic uh, reaction just to seeing the word your Euro- European court of justice in an agreement so I think mm. that's still to be tested how that really plays out on the on the UK side
0: so this is all very promising so far now um, just one final sort of sort of content um issue on on trade and and particularly services here. Now, David mentioned this right at the beginning, this question of financial services, and Jennifer mentioned it as well as uh, with a possible linkage to to sort of the fish deal on on fisheries. I mean, unlike fisheries, financial services, uh, you know, accounts for nearly 7% of of Britain's GDP. It's a fairly vital sector. Um, Now, the issue here is that the EU wants to pretty much to be able to cut off uh, the City of London's access to European markets hasn't when it wants, cons- if it considers that the sort of the UK regulatory environment on financial services is, is no longer up to scratch. Uh, the UK, on the other hand, wants a much more long term and predictable arrangement because financial services essentially need a lot of certainty and a lot of stability. So, David, I mean, the same question, I suppose, really, you know, a big issue or much ado about nothing? I mean, this is, a, I suppose, some people, you know, might say that this is an area where the EU actually sort of does need British services.
1: Yes, I would argue that for financial services, this is an example where the UK market is arguably larger than the EU market. Mm. And the UK does have some leverage here. The EU is saying, we just want you to have the normal arrangement. I don't think the EU actually believes that's what they want. They would probably quite like to tie us into some kind of regulatory arrangements so that... They minimise the risk of basically having an offshore financial centre a few miles off the coast of Europe, which can Mm. do them great damage. It does get quite technical into financial services, into exactly which areas of equivalence and exactly how you manage it, who gets involved, which regulators doing what with each other. And what I suspect will happen is that somehow this will just get carved into its own area. Financial services will see regulators talking to regulators and they will somehow arrange something between them slightly to one side of the main negotiation certainly that's what i would be aiming for if i was on either side i think Mm. is to separate this off from a uk point of view you might think no well i've got leverage on financial services maybe i should use that elsewhere but the eu also know that equivalence is helpful it's complex it's technical it's probably best handled separately but again it's like I've said about a previous issue it's one of those where that might be the right solution how you get to that right solution is not obvious yeah, that's very
0: interesting. So Jennifer, the, the the suggestion that, you know, financial services might somehow be kind of carved off. But you know, I mean it's worth noting, isn't it, I suppose here that the EU has, you know, does have a bit of a track record of using access to its financial services market as leverage in negotiations as well, doesn't it? I'm thinking of the of the Swiss case obviously.
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was only 18 months ago that the, the Commission decided not to renew Swiss equivalents in financial markets. And then you saw that Swiss shares cannot be traded on EU markets and, and vice versa. And that was all about um, what was perceived in Brussels, uh, a Swiss intransigence over negotiating a new agreement. And uh, there was just a lack of patience with how the, the Swiss uh, of, uh, Swiss government, and Swiss parliament were handling this. So so you've got that uh, equivalence decision. So they really are prepared to use, we've seen that in the example, to use these decisions in a very political way. And I think, again, on this case, there's certainly they haven't ruled out playing hardball on equivalence decisions. I mean, interestingly, uh, Barnier said yesterday, I'm mentioning him a lot because he gave the, the press, conference, mm, press uh, summing, conference, summing up yeah. the, the week of negotiations. And, and he said, which I thought was interesting, that they will carry out uh, assessments on uh, on whether to grant equivalents uh, by the summer, and then the decisions will come later. So it's clear they're not in any hurry at all, despite the fact the Treasury have written to the Commission, you know, asking them, you know, would you like to get on with making your decision? Because after all, the, the UK is today 100% compliant with EU standards on on financial services so why would the assessment take so long i mean i'm sure the the commission would have an answer as to as to why it does take so long but but it's hard to avoid the, the feeling that they are they are sort of playing for time while they see how the negotiations go so they mm-hmm. have this in their back pocket at the end of the year and perhaps in time it will become less fraught and less political but i think in the short term that this this could become um very messy
0: okay all right moving on it's not all about trade obviously there's also a, a whole kind of s- aspect of the future relationship between the uk and the eu that has to be sorted out in terms of security of defense and foreign policy education and r&d now i'm kind of lumping all of these together but just very briefly or as briefly as we can the uk wants out really of europol it wants out of eurojust uh, the european arrest warrant and perhaps Perhaps crucially um, we've learnt this week definitively it wants out of the European Convention on Human Rights now uh, on foreign policy and defense it appears not to be very interested in any sort of sort of structural relationship at all while the EU is really quite keen and on R&D and the sort of questions of sort of the educational exchange and academic cooperation programs like Erasmus and Horizon Plus that kind of thing you know the UK is kind of playing a bit hard to get now David I know these are all very disparate areas they're not not Particularly your bag, either, I suppose. But, but in your view, how much will the two sides' sort of eventual desire for practical cooperation in these kind of areas play into this? The, you know, the, the overall talks and the UK's opposed the idea of linkage between other issues and trade. But in some of these fields, it's an area again where linkage could work to its advantages. And I'm thinking of defense, I mean, that's really the Britain has a, an, an intelligence
1: sharing and what have you. Britain has a, a strong card to play there. I'm very much treating these areas as ones where cooperation is likely to build over time, probably starting next year after any agreement is Mm. put in place this year. I see very little bandwidth or desire really on either side to play them into what is already a busy agenda for this year with the issues we've already covered, not to mention ones we haven't already covered, like the Northern Mm. Ireland Protocol and both sides getting ready for the new trading relationship. So I just don't think that there's much time or willingness to put these issues centre stage this year.
0: Okay, well, that's very clear. Sort of kick it into the long grass. Jennifer, does that sound about right to you? Particularly, I suppose, this question of the European Human Rights Convention. I mean, that seemed for Barnier to be a a very big sticking point this week, didn't it?
2: Well, I I did want to to come back to that because I think there's been a bit of confusion over this point, partly um, through Barnier's words, because... The, the government currently says that it has no intention to pull out of the ECHR. So I think to, we have to take them at their word on that. Um, but what they do object to very strongly is is enshrining the ECHR in this treaty that they are trying to write with the EU on security policy. Um, they just think it's unnecessary, mm. whereas the EU are uh, uh, insisting, you know, we want to we want the ECHR referenced in our treaty on security and defence because if the UK were ever to quit the ECHR, then that would that would automatically downgrade our cooperation in this area for all sorts of reasons because we wouldn't be able to guarantee the, the fundamental rights of EU mm. citizens when it comes to very sensitive things like data transfer, including transfer of, very, of personal data such as DNA. Mm. So for the EU, this is a really crucial point that they want that reference to the ECHR in the uh, agreement with the UK and the UK for now they're saying no we we don't need it but they're not actually planning to pull out of the convention full stop albeit I think there are plenty of conservative uh, MPs who who would like to to go in that direction one day and which is why the EU wants to get this into their treaty they don't have Confidence in the, in the government in this regard. It's for them. It's not a question of, of trust. They want it written down in in small print. But I do. I slightly disagree with with David on on these some of these other issues because I think the security issues are a priority for both sides. But it's not obvious how quickly you, you'll be able to agree them this year. But I think they will try very hard to get a replacement for the European arrest warrant because it will be such a, a backward step if uh, if suddenly. Um, you know british uh, criminal suspects are mm. able to sort of hide out on the costadel crime as in the old days again yes and, and i think versa. both sides are really mm. anxious to avoid that but but then you do get into lots of very technical waters um, very quickly, including the role of the ECJ once again. So it's it's not going to be easy getting these arrangements up and running. And um, But I think there is certainly will to try.
0: All right, so much then for sort of the meat and bones uh, of the talks. I'd, um, I'd just like to address a few sort of broader questions that might have a, a bit of an impact on the talks. The first, and I suppose the biggest one, the sort of the real elephant in the room that we should get out of the way, is um, the very basic question of, are we absolutely sure that the UK wants a generous deal, or indeed any kind of deal at all? I mean, there is a a sort of a growing school of thought in Britain that says that, you know, the domestic politics here are all that really matters, and that given some of the things the government's been saying, it could well be that sealing a trade deal is not actually at the top of its priorities. In other words, you know, the sort of the political gain from being able to say, we've delivered Brexit and stuffed the EU might actually outweigh the economic pain of what most people seem to estimate will be, you know, like a sort of summer a hit to GDP of somewhere between five and and seven percent. David, I mean, what's your? I mean, the, it's a really fundamental question. Are you convinced that
1: Boris Johnson wants a deal? I don't think at the moment you can be convinced that they do want a deal, that they wouldn't walk away. But what I would say is that politicians. Prime ministers always want deals. They prefer to be able to say I got a deal, I got one over them. They said it couldn't be done, it was done. See for example the withdrawal agreement rather than saying I didn't get a deal, I couldn't get a good enough deal because no deal is intrinsically a failure of the politician. I didn't I didn't get this right. You can blame the other side, but it's not as satisfying as saying I got a deal, I showed I showed them they said it couldn't be done so on balance we would prefer a deal but i suspect that's about all there is to it i think that this is an administration that puts the message first thinks that it can control the message whatever happens in reality is not overly worried about the gdp forecasts Mm. is quite happy to have no deal will be will be fine whether we will be or not is another matter but i think they think they can message their way out of anything
0: I mean, nonetheless, I mean, it was pretty striking um, the day that the the UK published its negotiating mandate uh, last week. I mean, essentially, all the major industry bodies expressed, a, you know, a considerable degree of alarm, didn't they? You, the, you know, the CBI, the Institute of Directors, Food and Drinks Association, the Road Freight Body. Everybody basically seemed to consider that the government's objectives, which which at the moment appear to basically be, you know, accepting the cost, the paperwork the delays that this very basic free trade deal would imply – in exchange for kind of completely breaking free from EU rules and regulations and reclaiming, as they say, reclaiming British independence, I mean there are lots of voices in the EU who who are sort of privately saying, you know, do the British really understand what they're doing here? Do they realise what the impact is going to be? Do the EU27 think? Are they hoping for some sort of sort of uh, you know change of last minute change of direction like there was over the over the Irish Protocol?
2: I don't think they're I don't think they're banking on it, and I don't think people. Are- assume that uh, just because Boris Johnson did, you know, do a complete reverse at the last minute on the Irish protocol that the same thing will happen in the trade talks. I think that they have accepted, uh, diplomats have accepted that the UK wants a very distant relationship initially that caused surprise, it caused disappointment, especially most recently over foreign policy, the fact that the UK doesn't even want to discuss foreign policy in these negotiations, because it doesn't see the need to have a a foreign policy as part of the big agreement. It just wants to do uh, its sort of foreign relations with the EU on an ad hoc basis. So there's disappointment about that. But I think the message has been clearly understood. And I don't think they're they're really expecting a a sudden backflip from, from Boris Johnson. But there's been the view all along that they don't think the UK has really thought through what the consequences are. And um, and we've heard that again very recently from EU negotiators. This is clearly, um, it's a faith-based project for people at the top of the government. And uh, and on the EU side, they, they don't go much in for, for faith-based projects. They prefer to be very cautious and, and look at the numbers and uh, uh, and look at the legal text. So so yeah, disappointment, But uh, but I don't think anyone's counting on a, a last-minute conversion.
0: OK, thank you both. That is about it. And for now, just one very quick final question. The next Brexit means is going to be just after Easter. Um, will the two sides still be talking? David, what do you think?
1: I think the two sides will still be talking after Easter. I'm hoping that the talks become very boring and focused on detail and we have less unhelpful interventions from politicians that threaten to blow that off course if it's just left to officials, hopefully for a month or two, it'll go quiet. And then we, we, we reach April and May and we and we decide whether things are on course for an agreement or not.
0: OK, David, thank you very much. Uh, Jennifer, still talking at Easter?
2: Yes, very much. I think we'll we'll be in that sort of technical zone where the talks go on in very diligently perhaps don't hit the headlines in quite the same way. But I think we're probably on course for a bust up between both sides in, in the summer.
0: Well, that's about it for this time. Brexit means, as I said, we'll be back just after Easter with a look at how the first month or so of the talks have gone. In the meantime, please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. And if you haven't had enough politics talk, tune into our sister pod, Politics Weekly. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Danielle Stevens. This was Brexit Means. And thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news.